Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast, and with us today we have Ian Callum. Hello. Hello, hi Sam. Welcome. Can you tell the audience a little bit about, just a sort of short summary of who you are and what you do if if they've not come across you before? Yes, um, my name's Ian Callum. I've been a car designer for 40 years uh, professionally, and before that I was a car designer professionally. wanting to be car designer <laughs> from a very, very young age, probably the age of three or four years old, actually. So uh, it goes back a long way. Um, I've worked at Ford Motor Company. I've worked at TWR, Tom Walkershaw Racing. And the last 20 years of my life, well, prior to retiring, um, was at Jaguar, Jaguar Cars in, in Coventry. I've been retired now, effectively. Well, I left work three years ago to start my own design business called Callum. So not, not quite retired then? Still still, <laughs> still going? Retired. No, it's, um, I sometimes wonder why, but, uh, you know, but I think, I think about designers like any creatives, they don't really want to stop. You've got to keep going. Mm. And you have to keep proving to yourself that uh, you can still do it. Um, you know, like old rock stars, I suppose, they just keep going until they fall over, you know? <laughs> And I guess, like from the, uh, you said from the early days, you know, you were always, you like designing cars, even as like a kid. Um, is that, is it, has the sort of the design part been the bit that's the most sort of overall interests you, or is automotive and then it's some weird blend of the two? No, I think I've, I've, I've often asked myself this, and if I'm honest, it's the design part, it's the whole process of design. I actually, started off drawing things around the house when I was very young. So before I even had any notion of motor cars, that came a little bit later. Um, 
Um, and when I went to college and, and art school in Glasgow, I did, I did um, industrial design, product design. So I was designing lots of things other than cars. I was I was fortunate; I was allowed to design a few cars while I was there, or car type products. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a process of design that satisfies me most. But unfortunately, in many ways, I also have a passion for cars. Separately, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of old cars, and I love the whole notion of a motor car as it is today. Although it's probably going to change over the next few years, but um, it's something that means a lot to me and it's given me a lot of pleasure uh, in life so mm. bringing the two together has, has been ideal really yeah and from that when you start you know doing product design and then moving on to designing cars i imagine cars are generally probably more complex than most products yeah although i'm sure there's some some other stuff is that how do you sort of start bridging that gap of I don't I don't know what you were designing initially, but it, it could be something like you know something that goes on your table or whatever, and then something as well, crazily complex as a car. The, the the process is really just first of all, it's just about the big picture. You know, you start off drawing cars as as a full entity. You know, mm. car shape on wheels. And um, when I was younger, I probably emulated a few cars that I saw out there. I wasn't in a, so much of a creative mode. I was a, a bit of a copycat mode and, you know, I was drawing stuff around me. So there's a process of drawing that I probably learned first. And it's quite an important process because the form of communication. But once I realized I could draw, I could create because mm. nobody's telling you what to draw, how to draw. So yeah, the, whole, yeah, yeah. The, whole, the whole notion of creativity came into play. And then I realized, of course, I could design my own cars. And, you know, at that point, decided that's what I would do one day in a rather naive, optimistic way. <laughs> and and it, it just came about through the whole process of drawing. I think the process of, of uh, industrial design teaches you problem solving. Like any good creative, whether it be an engineer or a designer or a songwriter, whatever they might be, it, it's about problem solving. It's about finding the answer to the question you're asking. And, of course, first of all, you need to know the question you're asking because that's where <laughs> a lot of people get confused and they, they end up with sort of random designs because they haven't really gone in there with a, an objective of trying to resolve something. That, that resolution might be <clears throat> a practical resolution. It might be an aesthetic resolution. It might be how do you make forms work over certain packages. Uh, but ideally, it's probably a matter of a, a case of, of, of both, really. It's about practicality and aesthetic. And car design really is all about that. Hmm. And that that bit of defining the question and the sort of overall thing of it, do, is that quite a... Do you delve into that heavily at the beginning, I guess, for quite a period of time. Yes, I do, because, you know, in professional life, you're usually told what the question is. And then my first point is to question the question. You know, I, I, I go into the, the the brief and really try and understand what is the brief trying to resolve. If somebody says to me, design a five-seater saloon car to replace the F-type, sorry, the, yeah. the X-type, for instance, you know, I would say, well, is that really what you want to do? Or do you want to create something that's quite new? And that's what happened when I did the I-Pace. So, you know, it's really about questioning the question and questioning objectives. Because when you get a set of objectives, you get a set of attributes thrown at you. And these attributes are really stem from facts that we know today. Right. And the designer's job is really to question those facts. Are these the only facts or do they really matter? And then, and then I also say that when you're 
apply yourself to to designing something. I said this in my professional work all the time to my to my superiors to the board. You know, really, you have to really work hard to work out what your priorities are. Because when you work in a car business, they have this set of attributes that come at you. And everybody puts their attributes at the top of the list. Well, you can't be <laughs> yeah. everything to all men. That's just a fact of life. Design is about putting that into a sense of order and working out where the priorities are and where the lesser things should be. And in a corporate business, that's a very difficult thing for people to do, but that's what yeah. a designer has to do. I'll give you an example. If you can design an F-Type Jaguar, you design a two-seater sports car with enough power to be enjoyable and, and wrap everything around that for two people. That's that's the objective. There shouldn't be other yeah. objectives involved. Designing a transit van, you're designing something to carry so much capacity. And therefore, yeah. the shape and design of it is determined by something. I know it's a very obvious thing to say, but you'd be surprised how confused people get about these things. You know, yeah. but bits in the middle that are not so obvious, it becomes quite quite an interesting discussion, let's say. So, um, yeah, it's about really understanding what the objective is and what you're trying to resolve. Yeah, and you can see it. You can see it in products that come out and you go like, yeah, but like, what exactly are you trying to do? Like, at the moment, we see, we seem to have a lot of vehicles that are kind of SUV, half carrying people, but don't necessarily have more space in them. And then you kind of wonder, I wonder like, you know, what is that? Have they been designed with a purely a purpose or is it just everyone's chucking their thing in and there's some marketing and sales and. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of marketing speak in these things. And it's always something that I looked at with a little bit of skepticism because they're, 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 on the whole, based on something that's happened in the past. And if, if somebody does a, a, an SUV, it's clearly it's a, it's, a, it's a sports utility vehicle. It has objectives that you should understand. It should be able to go off-road to a certain extent. It should be able to carry five people in, in comfort, but also with a certain um, seat posture, which is quite high up. And that's mm. what people actually like in these cars. But they become too expensive, so they start creating something called a crossover, which is really a car which is built up slightly higher in order to meet that aspect of it. Does it meet all the aspects of an SUV? No, it doesn't. And so it's kind of between the two because they can't decide whether they do a car or whether they do an SUV. And it may well be that cost is, and the pricing is, is the determining factor there. And so you get this sort of enormous range of vehicles that are stemmed from various different objectives. Mm. And really not one of them is, is taking a priority. But that's fine. If, if, if at the end of the day it's what people are happy to buy and want, yeah. then, um, then, then it works for the, from a commercial means, it works. Crossover is an interesting thing because they are derived from SUVs. They're not really SUVs. And they are derived from the notion that people want to sit higher in their car and, and, and feel a little bit safer because they're sitting higher. Um, but also they're just a cheap version of SUVs. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. And, and I know like a lot of my friends they, or people I know, they'll get in a car and they they really like their high up driving position. I'm like, okay, but have you ever sat in a normal car and actually just raised your seat? And they're like, oh, hang on a minute. I can see. Because a lot, a lot of it is like my wife or other, other ladies, and they can't see over the steering wheel. You know, they're, they're like, they're so sat so deep in the car that, um, that it just doesn't work. 
there's an option. There's always an option. There's always an option, exactly. How do you feel about when you've got designing for what you hear a lot about, but it's what sort of customers want or what customers are looking for and designing for design purpose first, customers will come second or customers want this, therefore we design it. How do you feel about that kind of Well, of course, we when we were in the car industry, and that's my only reference to these, what we did over the last 40 years. I was involved in a lot of um, customer studies and and concept group and study groups with with Mm. customers. On the whole, I didn't really find them um, hugely helpful because what you find out very quickly is people don't know what they want until they see it. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, it's normal, you know, if, if, and I'm sure Johnny Ive in designing the iPhone wasn't listening to like, – he was listening to a lot of customers how they wanted things to work, but certainly not how it looked and how it would probably operate at the end of the day. So, you know, if you create something that is better than the last thing without asking customers, I'm sure they will they will come to you anyway. So I'm, I will listen to – I would always listen to customers what they want, but they don't really know what they want until the next new yeah. thing comes along, and they'll want that. I mean, if you ask somebody um, 20 years ago, what would they want in a phone? They'd say a cordless phone. They wouldn't say an iPhone, yeah. would they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it, it's, it's a very complicated um, set of questions you need to ask somebody to really get to what they want. However, having said that, I think and be, because we haven't asked so many questions with some of this modern technology, things do tend to get overly complicated. Mm. And now we're offering customers things they don't actually want or need. In, in, in one product because they're accessible through some other means of, of electronics. And yeah. a car is like that. You know, if you, if you take a modern motor car, it's, it's, it's capable of so much more than your average customer actually needs in both communication and ability. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a bar to get to and everybody tries to reach that level. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find designing a, a variety of cars over your career? Um, I was looking looking back at sort of some of the things. Um, one of the ones you were involved in, I don't know to what extent, was the Nissan um, LMGT1, was it R390? Yes, yes. Was, <laughs> yeah, well, that was a, that was a weird one. Um, I was very fortunate in that during my time at Ford and also at TWR, I learned a lot about aerodynamics and from, from both sides, from both downforce and efficiency. And they're two quite distinct different um distinctly different objectives um so i had some way of understanding what the aerodynamics of a race car should be i wasn't a super expert there were other people to do that but what happened there was that the um the car had to be in the spirit of a, a road car and it had to be homologated as a road car and of course having designed a number of road cars i knew what homologation meant in terms yeah. of legislation that's quite complicated and so um, Tom Walkinshaw gave me the job of designing the body for it for two reasons. He wanted something that would meet all the, the, the road regulations so he can get it homologated clearly. And also he wanted something that was in the spirit of a road car that you looked like you get into and drive, as albeit maybe a supercar, but at least it didn't look like an all-like all race car, mm. which is really quite divorced from your normal road cars. I mean, there are areas where they blend together clearly, but he wanted this car to look like a bona fide supercar road car and so he asked me to design the body and and the, the shape of it almost in entirety and i worked with the aerodynamic people to make sure we got the aero right which i think were pretty pretty good 
but the end result was something you could put in a showroom because it yeah. was, because in this case it was about the aesthetic. It did matter to him that it looked like a, a customer car you can go and buy. Yeah, unfortunately, we only made two. But um, yeah, it was, it was quite a cool thing. And how was presumably back then? So this was nineteen ninety seven, eight, something like Seven, that. Yeah, uh, late nineties. Yeah, um, the the tech that you the tools in your toolbox have evolved significantly from them. Has your sort of process evolved as well, along with some big changes? Yeah, the process of getting from idea to reality has changed um, considerably. And, and, and the great advantage it gives you is speed mm. and an opportunity for different ideas without having to focus on one or two ideas because you only have time to do that. And, you know, we go into a digital world very quickly now and we create things digitally to a point that aesthetically you can make a lot of judgment from them. I mean, there's a time we're going through that period when we were learning and they're kind of late 90s we're just discovering this and i was never i was a little bit cynical about it naturally but um i was never confident you can make judgment on digital models just looking at mm. them but nowadays i'm absolutely confident we can make a lot more judgment on them and so we can create these digital models to all intents and purposes they are full 3d models that might as well exist there's enough yeah. information there just to to to, to build them um, but at the end of the day, I still insist on, on creating probably a clay model or a, a full-size verification model. I, yeah. I still wouldn't have the, the 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 courage to go and produce an idea from digital into millions Production. of pounds of tooling. Yeah. Um, some designers say they might. But I'll tell you this thing. Um, no matter what people say around the world, oh, we're fully digital, we're fully digital, they're not. You know, they're not fully digital. They might do a lot more work digitally, but in reality, there's still a clay model lurking away in the background, getting yeah. refined by touch and feel and, and 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 visually and walking around it and absorbing it. Because a, a motor car is a big thing. You yeah. know, it's not the size of an iPhone or a or a telechanger or something like that. It's not something you can just look at from a few a few inches. It's something you have to see as a totality from 200 yards away. Yeah, hundred meters away. So, you know, it's a big thing to take in, and you have to be able to to, to absorb it as a full entity in, in in its real space. So, to that end, I still insist upon working uh, finally with a, with a with a model that can be changed. Yeah, it's I, I find it, as humans we uh, this amazing ability with like our eyes and our hands to see stuff that like you just when you look at it in terms of how out something is or a line, etc., like I'm, you will look at a car and go, okay, hang on, we need to change this, but you have to see it and touch it versus a little yeah. in terms of that final bit. Right. Or you, not. you do. And I, I'm sure I always equate our, our work to, to songwriters. They're probably the same. You know, there's a, there's a note slightly like a cue there. So you need to go and adjust these notes or the way they relate to each other or, or layers of, of, um, of music that have to run together. Um, and so, yeah, you have to, you have to be part of it physically. And I think this need to be part of things physical will come back to us as a, as a race, you know, we're going into almost a, a, a meta world to use a phrase, yeah. um, you know, into this sort of strange world of digital make-believe. But, uh, you know, the crafts are coming back. People want to see and feel things that are made by humans and, and you can touch and feel them. And, 
And this whole process, I think, is the same. I think people want to be part of it physically, not just digitally. Yeah. But it's but it's it's a it's, it's an endless discussion, really. You know, you you talk to another designer who might be a bit younger than me who will totally disagree. Say, no, I'm quite happy to have the digital world. And the first thing we see is a a product that suddenly appears on the road first time. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Do you surround yourself with sort of nice bits of design that you can like touch and feel at home? Um, do you know, well, not really. I mean, I'm looking around, I suppose I've got a couple of nice things on the, uh, on, on the, the, the music side of things. Cause I like listening to music and, you know, I've got bars and books and stuff and I've got, um, um, a couple of nice pieces of, of technical stuff in terms of music. But do you know what? I don't really. I'm quite austere in my uh, in my surroundings. And that gets back to my sense for, you know, minimalism. And you find as you get older, the less things you actually want around you, you know, except perhaps fresh air and sunlight. Um, but uh, no, I've got a nice watch. Um, my cars are important to me, obviously. I've got a nice house, which I designed myself. So, yes, yeah, there's an answer there. Uh, although I'm already at a stage that I want to go and do another one because this one <laughs> wasn't designed well enough. <laughs> um, in terms of artifacts, you know, pictures, yeah, on the wall, very important. Um, but I don't buy things purely to have aesthetics around me, no. I'm not quite William Morris on that front. With the things like you say, you know, your house, you've done it and then you're like, ah, okay, I would like to change it a little bit. Do you look back at older projects and go, oh, I would have done this or, oh, I've changed that now. And is that a constant sort of slight thing or are you trying to just move forwards? Yes, always. Always, you know, you look back at what you've done. I mean, you've got to stop at some point and move on. And when you stop, you've got to feel pretty satisfied with what you've done. And you might yeah. feel... 99% satisfied, but you know you're going to come back 10 years later and think, mm, really? You know, that could have been a bit better. But also what happens is visual aesthetics change. Time changes things. You know, your own outlook changes things. So it's not just a case of whether it's right or wrong. It's a case of how time moves aesthetics on. And, yeah. um, and, and therefore you leave those things of an era behind. Um but sometimes they're they're part. If you look at an E type, for instance, it's perfect. It's of an era, though. It's definitely yeah. not 2022 car. It's of an era. Um, so, but you, I can accept that. It's far enough away now just to be accepted for what it is. Yeah, they did change it and messed it up, by the way. So they would <laughs> as it was. Yeah, that is a that is it. Must be a, a difficult one. How do you, as a designer? Do you think, because I look at different aesthetics and some cars come out and I go, okay, maybe in five years time, I think that will look great. But now I'm not sure. And then I've seen it happen where things look better in the future. Um, one that I look back now, I think 12C. I quite like the design of the 12C now. Didn't particularly like it when it came came out. But do you think your sort of brain is... 10 years ahead of current of just general pop or is it sort of how do, how do you sort of place that well the, the, the way I place it now it, it, that's a very difficult thing I mean there's, there's a number of things there I look at some cars now and think they're wrong 
And I know they're still going to be wrong in 10 years' time. You know, <laughs> and, they, and they make me cringe. And I just think, guys, what are you doing? But there are other cars that actually come out and think, well, you know, that's that's quite quite obtuse or quite aggressive, but I could see that working in a while, you know, because things in your eyes mellow. I mean, yeah. the Audi grill, for instance, you know, we looked at the first Audi grills, like, whoa, whoa. But you see them now, your eyes grow accustomed to that yep. mass. And, and and so they get bigger and bigger until somebody says stop. And BMW is doing something similar now as well with the grills. You know, they're really testing the aesthetic. Uh, it, it looks challenging at the moment. Will it look challenging in five years? I'll be honest with you on that one. The, um, I'm not very sure. I think they'll be fine. I think there are other things in the cars that will not be fine, mind you. But uh, but I think the grill will probably be fine. Ah. My It's difficult for me because I'm a purist. My aesthetic is that I want stuff to, to, to be designed in a way that you will enjoy it fairly immediately. Mm. Um, or at least when you see it for the first time or at least the yeah. second or third time. I don't want people to wait five or six years until it works. Uh, I want people to enjoy that, you know, that that aesthetic, that piece of music, or that piece of writing. You know, when when they absorb it for the first or second time, that's quite important to me. Um, I also believe if it does happen that way, it will it will stand the test of time. Yeah. Yes, it will be of an era, like I've said before. It will be of a time, um, but it it still won't great with you. It'll still be enjoyable. And aesthetics to me is, is, a, is a point of joy the way that anything creative should be, you know, whether a piece of art or or, 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 or music. Um, it's about it's about enjoying something. And somebody said, what's your, you know, what's your objective? Uh, what's your metric, as he used to say in the business, for measuring your cars? Oh, God, I hated them. What's <laughs> your metric? <laughs> well, my metric is 17. What does that mean exactly? What does that mean? You know, <laughs> it's 17 out of 17, right? And it's just, for a designer, it's just a nonsense. Yeah. Um, but my metric I used to tell people is that when somebody buys something that I've been involved with um, and they get home from work and they park the car up on the driveway, if they're lucky to have one, and they turn around and look at it and smile, then I have one. That's it. Yeah. I'm happy. Because it gives them a joy. If they just get into the house and you know and get on with the rest of their day, then then the car becomes sort of a, a nothingness in their life. Then that yeah. designer has failed in my my eyes. And it doesn't matter how exotic or modest the car is; it, it matters every time. To me, that matters. And and, and people say to me, um, "Well, why should it matter? Does it really matter what car looks like?" Yes. Well, <laughs> no. Probably not. Does it matter what anything looks like? Does it matter what your clothes that you wear look like? You know, you've got to, you know, and if it doesn't matter to you, then fine. But I think if if a human being, if, if, if someone's going to create something, do the best job possible. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really cost much more. It might cost a bit more if we're exotic with the materials that we would make, make a car, but do the best possible job possible. And that has always been my, my, my approach. And yeah. it will matter to somebody, you know, not everybody. And it, I think sort of if I look back at least my lifetime, cheaper cars seem to, to some extent, have less sort of interesting design. But we're, I feel like that's changed a lot over time. And actually now some of the most interesting design I think is in that space, which particularly around EVs, is the sort of lower end of the sequence and in companies like whether it's like Peugeot or Hyundai or you know all these companies 
Kia coming out with stuff that you go, oh, hang on a minute. And then you've, you've got BMW over here who've designed something that might look better in the future, unknown. Um, and then all these really sort of great shapes and designs coming out. I, I think it's, I think it's awesome because it's previously it kind of used to be in the more exotic stuff. It, it did. I think because companies tend to give more exotic stuff a bit more time and, and, and effort, but um, I've always been a great lover of smaller cars, not necessarily cheaper cars, but, but they do tend to run hand in hand yeah. price and size, which is always unfortunate because I always wanted to do a small Jaguar. And they yes. said, well, we can't get down to a price band that, that we can afford to build. I said, well, do a small Jaguar. There's an expensive one. But nobody could buy into that. It wasn't going to happen. So, which I actually disagree with. I, I don't think size matters in that respect. I think, I think you so. create a smaller object that people will buy because it's small. I spoke to so many, particularly women, who were of a certain social standing when I went to various um, you know, events and parties, and they said, well, why don't you do a baby Jaguar? I said, well, because the the price point will be too low for us to be able to build it. Oh, I don't care what I pay for it. Yeah. You know, if it, if the car's right, but it's small enough to drive around London, they will buy it, but they want the luxuries and the features and everything else. So I still hold that point that small luxury still has a place in the world. However, um, no, you're right. Small cars are finding a stronger place in the world, um, but it's all relative. Small ca- small cars are still too big, in my view. Yes, they're not, not small. Big. <laughs> uh, cars, cars are basically all too big. They should be smaller, but there are certain aspects of the cars which dictate their size, not least of all the fact that people are getting bigger and, and legislation and safety de- demands a lot of them now that, that perhaps 20, 30 years ago just wasn't there. But you're right. I think there's more attention being made to these small cars. And also the design teams in these companies are getting stronger and stronger. Mm. You know, people always assume that the best designers are, are in Jaguar, Aston Martin, and Ferrari, you know, Lamborghini, because these are the exotic car companies to work for. It's not the case. It really is not the case. Some of the best designers are actually in companies like Volvo. You know, yeah. I like to think JLR as well, but uh, I'll let somebody else make that opinion. Yeah. Certainly not, not necessarily in in the exotic car world. No, and I I love it when I come across a new a, a new vehicle, a new experience of a vehicle, and I I'm looking around the cabin or something, and there's something that's like a di- bit different and neat, and like a neat solution that I've not seen before. And you're like, oh, why does no one else do that? And I've only found it in this car, which is must seem obvious after the fact, but there'll be a reason. To, why you don't just come up with these things. Yeah, most good designers like that. You know, somebody thinks of it and says, well, let's... And I used to say to my team, let's just think up some crazy ideas, you know, mm. and if I think up 50, maybe one of them will come to fruition and, you know, think off the wall. And it sometimes works. You you, you come up with something which, which nobody else has. And it, it, they may be fairly gratuitous ideas, but it just adds a bit of sparkle to the interior of the vehicle. Uh, yeah. emotion, emotional sparkle, I mean. Yeah. In your sort of period of designing, the technology for making cars has changed a lot and the tools for design and stuff like that. Has that really shifted what you can design and how you sort of almost how you think about design, I guess, because the manufacturing will have changed a bit and then give you more scope? Or do you sort of go for it and then work it out? 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, the, the, the process... The process designing a car now, I mean, I started back in the 70s and, you know, the, the Mark III Escort was, was about to come out. So the car I was familiar with at the time in the road was a Mark II Escort. I mean, if you look at Mark II, II Escort, uh, and people are paying lots of money for them now, by the way, but um, or a Mark I, they're incredibly simple objects. Yeah. They really are. They're a, a kind of a, a box with, you know, leaf springs stuck at the back. <laughs> um a motor car now is hugely complex, hugely complex in so many aspects in the way it's put together, the electronics of it. I mean, you no, know, 40% of the development of a new motor car is electronics. Wow. You know, when I started, it was about 4%. <laughs> okay, so yeah. it's multiplied by 10. Um, while the rest of it has probably stayed in terms of manpower about the same, uh, but they're doing a lot more with the tools they have to get to the solutions they need to get to. And um, they're hugely complex items. Now, in order to be able to cope with that complexity and that number of components, if you sit in the interior of a car and look at the number of components that are there, it's phenomenal. You know, and the way the seats are built, they've got 16-way controls in some cars. They've got every feature under the sun. And, and, and so it goes on and on and on. And you need the tools now. You need the opportunity to, to design and engineer things much quicker to get through that that mass of work yeah. that 20, 30 years ago would have taken 10 years to do, you know, just for a simple motor car. And the other thing that amazes me is people look at motor cars now, almost some of them as commodities. These are the ones that really don't care what they look like, but um, just to get from A to B, they have no idea of how complicated that vehicle is underneath. And the amount of work that's gone into developing it is phenomenal. Just the way it goes around the corner. You know, the, the understanding of the geometry, how that car is on a corner so it doesn't do odd things. 15 years ago, you accepted, 20 years ago, that a car would start to spin sideways, you know, on a slightly damp road. But nowadays, that's unacceptable. So the technology of what that car is doing to stop that happening is phenomenal. And I think anybody who learns to drive today in a modern car is well protected from reality of the dynamism of that vehicle and what it can do. Yeah. Well protected, you know. I learned to drive in a, in a mini, the original mini. I mean, that was a very capable vehicle. Talking of small cars and yeah. cheap cars, that was very capable. But my goodness, you had to be at your wits, you know, <laughs> your wits, and, and on on you know full power in order to drive that car at any reasonable speed, or even a yeah. Ford Anglia, you know. So the the complexity about of a motor car from a design, engineering, uh, understanding 
point of view is just phenomenal and probably more complex. And I'd say just about anything in the world, maybe bar uh, a fighter jet. Yeah. So, you know, that's hugely complex for obvious reasons, but, but, uh, it's um, it's 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 an incredible accomplishment to build and design any motor car now. Yeah. And of course, the problem now is is all changing. You know, we spent a hundred years getting to where we are now, and we have to <laughs> set, take a step back and think, "Oh my goodness, what do we do now? We have to change all this." People say, "Well, why don't people just build electric cars?" Well, it's not that simple. It you know, there are there are factories out there built. The factories designed to build a million cars of one type, one 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 yeah. line one not just a brand, but a line, a million cars a year. And suddenly you're going to say, well, we're not going to build them that way anymore. We're going to build them with electric platforms and this and this and this. I mean, it's mind-blowing, the change that the car industry is going to have to go through and is going through. And I saw evidence of this when I was at Jaguar, you know, the, the angst of, you know, you've got a billion pounds to spend. Where do you put it? Yeah. You know? You know, some people say, well, we need another V8 engine. Well, the last thing you want to do now is design a new V8 engine. You've probably only got a five-year lifespan. Yeah. You know, and it's going to cost you three-quarters of a billion to design. So it's 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 interesting times, as I say, for the car industry. Was that quite interesting when you were doing the I-Pace, which was one of the very early sort of mm. electric cars that was then adopted? You're heavily involved in all of that process. Yeah, what was it like at that time going, trying to handle that change? Well, I, it, was, it was fantastic. I, I was loving it because I could see opportunity here to do and do something quite different, you know, and really, really turn the status quo on its head, you know, mm. an engine at the front and luggage at the back and people in the middle and all that stuff. Well, we had this platform. We could put anything anywhere, really. We had crash requirements, of course, so it still has to have a bonnet of some kind. But... um you know, to absorb any impact. But on, on the whole, we could move people around easier. There was nothing predetermining where where the package of this car should be above the wheel axle. Yeah. We've never been given that opportunity before. So <laughs> it ended up in, a quite, I think, quite a different shape, really. It, yeah. And it's probably as, as different as cars are ever going to get, frankly. But um, it was a great time. But on the other hand, the process of developing a, a platform, an electric platform, and the manufacturing side of it, was hugely complicated and mm. and hugely expensive and it caused a lot of trials and tribulations amongst the the the, the 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 top management because they were saying well do we can we really afford to do this and my argument was you can't afford not to do it yeah. you know you had to do it this was just the start of a whole new journey so get into it now learn from it and i have to tell you when we're doing the fps it was never at the forefront of anybody's mind within the business it was just a always it was just a half we have to do this in addition yeah. <laughs> you know i think if we were to do it now it'd be the top of the list and not somewhere near the bottom somewhere at the bottom yeah in fact it was near the bottom of the list allowed the design team a lot more freedom because people weren't taking a huge amount of notice of it being developed yeah which was wonderful the next the sort of the next stage of I guess EVs, but also mobility. Where do you see this going moving forward? Because I know it's, it's quite an expansive topic, but going from small cars to now there's plenty of other things that are available that are even smaller. Yeah, I think the, the use of multi, multiple use of cars, you know, one car using being used by a number of people as in a taxi mode, but 
autonomous mode is, is going to become more commonplace, in which case the car's aesthetic becomes more about good design and 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 um, a good aesthetic to have in the road rather than a very personal one. Mm. However, I don't think people will give up motor cars as a personal object for quite a number of years yet, whether it be electric or autonomous or whatever. Uh, I think people will always want to have that that object in the driveway, even if they use it less. And um, maybe their purchasing process might be different. Maybe it'll be leased more often and they'll change them every six months or whatever. But I think people will still want a personal mode of transport in the driveway for quite a time to come. Um, however, things are changing. And the answer to that is I don't really know. I don't know. A lot of younger people don't even want to learn to drive. So, you know, in 20, 30 years' time, the car may become um, less of a, a requirement. Uh, yeah. And, and public it- transport will become the more obvious means of transportation. Public transport, which I'm a great believer in, has to get better. Yeah. You know, I do use public transport, but it's simply not good enough. That's it. And you go to places that have, it, it, it gets down to sort of town planning, doesn't it? That's kind of the the yeah. key part. And then the rest of it fits in or doesn't fit in. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I, I won't get political here, but there should be governmental policy on all public transportation around the country that, that works for people. Mm. Um, you know, I think people get me to be, I think nowadays and today's right is, is, is much of the right as people having education or, or food on the table. Um, so it needs, it needs to get better. But the motor car will prevail. Well, people like you and me will still want to get into their indulgence and enjoy the weekend in them. Exactly, exactly. So with Callum Designs, you've, you've delved into quite a few different, different projects. What have been some of the more of your, your sort of personal favourites or particularly interesting ones? Well, we've done, yeah, this was getting back to my original notion that I'm a designer rather than just a car designer. And, mm. and the funny thing is, if you're a designer, you want to prove it to yourself. You're more interested in proving it to yourself than anybody else, frankly. Um, if other people take note of it and are, are complimentary, then great, that's a bonus. But it's your own belief and self-beliefs that matter. We've done it some furniture. We've done a chair. We're going to do another chair soon. Uh, you know, we're actually having those built. Uh, we're actually doing coal boxes at the moment, believe it or not. I mean, it may seem like a small commodity, but quite a fascinating subject. Yeah. Um, we've done some electric scooters and motorbikes. We will be doing a couple of supercars for customers, but that's getting back to the car world. Yeah. We did the Dakar car for um, ProDrive, which you, you may know about the yeah, 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 Easter yeah. thing um, called the Hunter. Um, that was good fun. Uh, and we're doing various things. Oh, we've even done our own whiskey, you might have noticed. But uh, I saw that, yeah. It's uh, so a passion project. or Yeah, that was just a bit of a passion project. And, and, and done with a friend of mine I was at school with who owns a distillery. So just happens to own a distillery, you know, as they do. What were, like with, with the whiskey, what was the sort of, you know, what was the question at the start? <laughs> well, the question was, um, Ian, I have a distillery. Would you like to do a, would you like to have a barrel of one of, of my, Whiskey will pick the best. And it was an offering rather than an objective. And I said, yeah. He says, well, you design the bottle and we'll supply the whiskey. So it was as simple as that. But we did pick the barrel. It's a unique barrel. Um, And uh, we've created 250 bottles of it. Mm. It was was, was an opportunity to create a a whiskey bottle, really. Did you um, you do something with the British bobsleigh team? 
Like yeah, we took they they were they were um, asking for a bit of help with just minor stuff. Really, we didn't we didn't design their whole capsule, so to speak, their bobsleigh. We took the one we had, which was a bit tired, and we rebuilt it and we redesigned the detailing on it, so it was a bit more ergonomic and also right. just a bit more beautiful to look at. So you know, when they're up there and they're on the on the track with all these uh, other wealthier teams, then uh, they would feel as if they were they were the part of the the same uh, the same level. So we did some detailing work and we did the graphics as well, which was a bit of fun. And on on something like that, that probably for most people looks like kind of a simple thing. I imagine the ergonomics and stuff like that is actually incredibly important in terms of actual performance because it's got to work and they've got to be able to use it. Well, we had to discover how they made it work. I mean, you know, we went through the videos with them. We didn't actually physically do it ourselves because it wasn't it wasn't practical, but. Um, it's it's a pretty demanding process to go through, and we immediately saw areas where they could they were hurting themselves on something. Yeah. So we saw areas where we could make improvement just by a bit of application, you know, and the fact we could do it, and a bit of common sense, but more about application. So mm. yeah, jumping on a bobsleigh at that speed and staying there is very complicated, <laughs> and not something I would want to do. Yeah, but we were brave people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a lot of your designs, to me, look look very complete and kind of organic and like nicely rounded off. You see, or you, I hear of um, designers and heads of design having to sort of fight with other parts of their company, etc., to sort of maintain that vision. Is that is that quite difficult to do? I imagine it depends on where you're working, but. No, it's very difficult to do because the inputs you get are fairly adamant, you know, and somebody will say if they're designing, let's just call it a five series, you know, the headroom has to be this dimension. Yeah. The, the boot space has to be this dimension. The bonnet has to be here for pedestrian safety. And so the silhouette is, is pretty well predetermined mm. by a set of inputs and objectives from other areas. What we did at Jaguar was challenge those. And I said, you know, do you really need 75.2 millimetres headroom? Can we not make yeah. it 70? Oh, well, well, we'll lose a number of sales of cars if we do that. Nonsense. We'll make it better looking, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, and I remember a BMW designer coming to see me and said, we love the way you get the silhouette of your car. It's just looking a little bit more streamlined than ours. I said, well, the, you know, he told me, he said, we get given the overall dimensions to work to. I said, well, we challenge every one of them. You know, because the aesthetic to a Jaguar is, is so important. And that's, yeah. so the answer is yes, it's hugely difficult. It's hugely difficult convincing a, 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 a group of 200, you know, an analysts and, and um, objective setters that their numbers are not necessarily the right numbers. And you have yeah. to challenge them. I remember we doing the F type, the bonnet would have been about 20 inch, 20 millimeters taller. Than right. it is, than it ended up if we hadn't gone back and challenged the components under the bonnet. And so what you do is you go and learn about them and, and you take it head on and you challenge it. Because if the bonnet had been 20 millimetres higher, the, the seat height would have to have been 20 millimetres higher. So the roof would have been 20 millimetres. Yeah. You know, and it has a knock-on effect and we weren't going to do that. So, you know, and I, yeah, I could have my strops. I could, you know, <laughs> throw my toys out the pram and say, well, I'm not doing it then, you know. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that extreme, but people wonder why we got so sort of feisty, and it's because it mattered to us. Yeah, this car looked beautiful, and so you have to go back and negotiate the movement of bits and pieces that 
people don't want to move, including occupants, by the way, including yeah. people. You know, we've designed a car for something six foot three. Well, okay, tell me to get a Land Rover, Range Rover. <laughs> exactly. It's not for them. And have to, that's the point I was saying earlier. You have to find that balance of what really matters. So, yes, you're constantly battling with inputs and, and where to get. And every designer does, you know, because their their prime ob- objective is something which is aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. And then over time with more components going into cars and more regulations and whatever, like – is it much harder now to to design something that just looks good than yes, you know, it's much harder. It's, it's harder all the time, and you can't argue against safety. If you know if it saves one life, then you, then then there's something you you have to accept graciously. Um, but there's some regulations perhaps are a little bit over the top and not necessary. Uh, you can go back and maybe challenge them, but then you have to go through a court of law to change them. So you don't usually win that one. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, but no, it's becoming more difficult, and therefore the idea of uh, creativity and imagination becomes even more important. Mm. You know, people rave about all the 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 concept cars the Italians used to do in the sixties and fifties. <laughs> you know, all these lovely concept cars that the Carrozzeria of Italy used to build. Yeah. Said, Why can't we do cars like that? I said, because none of them would meet any of the regulations now. <laughs> Nowhere near it. You know. Um, an E-type wouldn't meet most of the regulations now. So you're, you're dealing with a completely new set of rules. And as you say, they're changing. They're changing annually. And also, you've got the American set of rules, the federal, as we call it, um, for crash requirements. And you've got the European. These are the two main ones, the European. and mm. I wish just wish they'd speak to each other and just get one set of rules because yeah. you actually have to design something which in some way conflicts the other. And some design engineer, uh, some European car companies, of course, Produce cars which are only for sale in in European-based yeah. countries, such as some of the many of the French cars, for instance. And um, you don't have to worry about the American regulations, which are really just as stringent, but they're different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it gets imagine you see it in the sort of the top end of the market, or actually, oh yeah, all the way through. You see cars that people in another part of the world or we we look at them and go why can't i have that and they go why can't we have that why can't we have this you know in america maybe we can't have this small hatchback type thing and they're like well it won't sell and you're like maybe it would yeah. i don't know yeah. well um, the other thing is interesting is the ford focus went into the us i remember when they decided to design it the ford focus was of course created in europe <clears throat> in in england and germany jointly and um a very very Wonderful, a wonderful car. And then they brought it into the US as a kind of little baby car that you give your 16-year-old daughter when she passes her test. And they suddenly said, well, we can't build this car here because it's too expensive. Because in Europe, Ford Focus was a family car. Yeah. In America, it was, you know, it was a Kmart car, so to speak. (laughs) And so the two were in complete conflict. And it was overly engineered for for an American type of cheap car. And so suddenly Ford found that building world cars wasn't actually that straightforward. Yeah. Because the markets are different. Yeah, they definitely are. And they're, they're changing very much all the time. Mm. In your own cars, what do you, um, do you, do you have a few of the ones you've designed or? <laughs> That's probably, you probably get that question all the time. Uh, um, only one. And that's the Aston Martin Vanquish. Mm. Um, which I'm selling, by the way, because uh, um, I'm having to reduce my 
my stable of cars a little bit. Yeah. Because it'll all become too complicated. My, but, um, yeah, I've got a Vanquish, yeah. My first experience in a sports supercar type thing was a Vanquish, actually. And mm. it was, and I think it, we came, went to Aston Martin and got, I got taken around this sort of test track. And uh, that that stuck with me forever, and I was like, "Oh, this is such a cool looking car." Um, which I know you've revisited. Are you still? How many of the? Is it what's it called? Vanquished by Callum? Is that what? It's yeah, called? it's can we call it the VC twenty five? Um, it feels so long ago now because you know I've, I've we're building them. Um, yeah, but I'm not involved in any of the development yeah. work. It's done. Yeah, we built a few. Uh, I'm not sure how many we built. A few. We're building a few more. Uh, over the next, probably the next two or three years, actually. Um, it's quite a demanding project because it is lasting a long time. To, you know, you, to, to take a car apart and rebuild it, it's not something you do yeah. in a month. It takes quite a while. And then during COVID, we had real issues with it in terms of supply of parts and things. So, you know, we, we stalled for a while, but uh, yeah. we're, we're back on track again. And yeah, in your, what are you sort of, uh, do you have an old 911? I do, yes. Yes, I have a 993, the best one. Yeah. <laughs> what um, led you to 993? That- well, two two reasons. It was, I love air cool. I grew up with Beatles as well as Minis. Yeah. I think they were the standard format for anybody growing up in the 70s. But um, uh, I love air-cooled engines, flat engines. I don't know something about them which I find very appealing. Mm. Especially when you have to fix them, you don't have to worry about all the water hoses. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, I just love the flat fours and flat sixes of uh, air cooled engines. So nine nine three was the last one, uh, last air cooled nine eleven, and Tony Hatter, my good friend, um, designer, designed the body for it. Um, so that was another another point of 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 interest, and um, I just think it's the best looking one. It's a beautiful car. Yeah, have you got an RS or is it? No, it's a modified 983. It's been heavily modified, uh, like an RS. Um, and it's, you know, it's a 3.8. It was done by Rook Engineering in Germany. Before I got it, I bought it. Mm, okay. Yeah. I bought it in that, that way. So it's a lovely car. It, it's been stripped out. It's, you know, pseudo lightweight. It's got carbon yeah. seats and, and such like. And quite raw. It's quite raw. Yeah. So. When I want to go out for a real seat of the pants drive, that's why. Although I have to, I've driven the distances, I've driven it to Scotland and back. It's fine, you know. Mm. So uh, it's it's quite uh, quite civilized. It has a radio. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to have some sort of music or something yeah, in, too. in yeah. all my cars. So I love my nine elevens. Yeah, um, and I got a few other old things which uh, you know. I'm constantly having to either have someone fix for me or fix myself. Do you quite enjoy working on them? Yeah, when it works. <laughs> yeah. I have moments when they don't work and I, my, the time my knuckles are bleeding and, you know, and I can't get the certain thread off and I oh, start swearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do enjoy working for them as long, working on them as long as I don't rely on it, which is often the case anyway. I can always just walk away and leave it for a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love to rebuild a couple just to get them back to a state of perfection, but I don't think I'll have time for that. Mm. What sort of things in the, I say design world, we could be automotive, pique your interest at the moment. What are you sort of looking at and going, oh, that's, that's quite an interesting segment or I'd like to see something um, like that? 
Well, unlike a lot of people, I don't, I don't have a huge fascination for watches. Funnily enough, a lot of people ask me that. I do like mm. watches. When I see one which I like, I will notice, notice it. I don't get drawn into branding of anything, funnily enough. Um, um, also, I keep very close eye in the car world. There are often cars out there people talk about that I don't even know about, which I've always lost track on. Uh, architecture, I, I like looking at modern architecture and mm. architectural ideas using different materials and things. And I suppose that's, in, in my mind, is something I'm gearing up perhaps to doing something in the future. I'd like to do another house for myself if I found the right plot. But um, yeah, um, furniture, I enjoy looking at furniture design, seeing how that develops. I look at product design uh, uh, sites. Um, it was the uh, the furniture ones. I was sitting in my dad's living room at the weekend, and he's got some chairs that we were just sort of discussing. What well, he actually wasn't in the room, but me and my wife were discussing like what works. And as you're saying about the design of cars, it, certain things are of the era that mm. they were designed in, but are like a, the great example of that era. Whereas you sometimes get sort of almost like a copy, but it wasn't the great design. And then immediately, it, 10 years later, 20 years later, it looks dated because it just kind of wasn't, it wasn't even right when it was conceptualized. That, that's often the case. Yeah, you see that in a lot of design work. It was, as I always say, it was wrong then, it's wrong now. It doesn't take <laughs> much. You know, you can look at a lot of mid-century stuff, which is becoming very popular because it's 70 years old now. And um, you look at a lot of mid-century stuff, and um, a lot of it was very beautiful. Even Bauhaus. I'm a great Bauhaus fan, you know, mm. a vastly chair. got two, actually. Um, you know, I love the, the simplicity of engineering and style that comes together with Bauhaus in a very yeah. minimalist, almost brutal way sometimes. Um, but a lot of the 50s stuff, if you look at it, um, uh, you know, especially in architecture, a lot of it was rubbish. <laughs> it was poor. A lot of it was great, you know, and concrete brutalism obviously became very popular for a while in the 60s. And some of it worked, but a lot of it still looks brutal and not, not, yeah. not nice. And people will stand by it and say, yeah, but it was of an era and therefore it has a value. Yeah, maybe. But if it didn't look good then, it still doesn't look good now. I don't get, I don't see what the value is. There's a certain shopping center, which I won't mention, but which was designed in the 50s, which I became familiar with. And, um, you know, I'd advocated that they knock the place down and rebuild something of, of today's idiom and, and, yeah. and some really beautiful modern design and let that last 100 years. Yeah. But, you know, the processes are up in arms about, oh, you have to protect it. It was designed in 1955. <sighs> and I said, it looks rubbish. I could use two stronger words. But, um, you know, it looks weak. It looks fragile. It's not nice. You know, yeah. it's built to a cost. You can tell. So knock it down, but oh yeah. no. I and think it has a preservation order on it now. It's, it's such a shame with that sort of stuff. Because like you said about whether it's a car or whatever, it's got to give you a good feeling when you look at it or mm. use it. And we have so many things that are a bit like that, that are sort of, you know, mandated that they must be around. And you're like, yeah, but when they were designed, they weren't designed to be around for a thousand years. They no. were just like, no, no, they no. were just done. I know. Um, so... I normally wrap these up with five questions. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. What's, what's your most memorable driving trip or journey? Wow, I've been so lucky. You know, I've done the Mille Miglia three times, 
you know, mm. and, and some fairly demanding cars, including a D-type, a Curie cost D-type, which is phenomenal. And that's four days of pretty rig. Anyway, put that to one side. The most memorable journey was driving a 250 shot wheelbase Ferrari that belonged to a friend of mine. And it was a Rob Walker one, number seven. Oh, yes. Um, blue with a white blue stripe with a white on stripe it. Yeah, that one. And I drove it up the west coast of Scotland through a road that I grew up with as a child. I used to go on holiday there through Ullapool and then further up the west coast. And if you've never been there, I advise you drive it because it's the most wonderful road in the world. Um, and you can see for miles. Yeah. So you can really plan your actions, you know? Yeah. And um, I took it up there and we did two days of driving with the Ferrari up there. All hell that was. Brilliant. <laughs> That and must I'm have been. To get it. It's just uh, the biggest tick in any bucket list you could possibly wish for. Yeah, that that must have been mega. One of my best or most sort of memorable drives was a, was a twenty minutes in a GTO engineering short wheelbase mm. revival type thing, um, and that that for me didn't have any of the you know the, those associations or anything of the right place or whatever. But for thirty minutes. I drove it and I pulled over on the side of the road and was like, okay, I need to have like a sit down. This is just too much like awesomeness. It, it's awesome's the right word. It's a phenomenal car to drive and it just plays with you as well. That's what I loved about it. You know, it, it just eased you in and, and you know, it wasn't, uh, and you had to drive it. It was a lovely car. Yeah. Lovely car. Rev it. That's it. Rev it. <laughs> easily. Yeah. Doing the, um, the Millimigia. Um, that that looks intense. Like, oh. is it fun at the time, or is it one of those things that you're like, "Ah, oh, that was awesome to do." It's grueling. <laughs> it's honestly grueling. You know, you you get through, especially if it starts to rain. Of course, the three cars I did it was a 120, a C type, and a D type. The three times. Nice. What's Jay Leno actually? Uh, nice. That was hilarious because he just kept telling me jokes for four days. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's grueling. And, you know, you take off at six in the morning or seven and you don't get back in till about 12 or one o'clock, the, the, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You're lucky if you can get a beer down you. You're off to bed and you're back up again at five and you're knackered. Yeah. No, no, it's unless you're in a closed car. I think if you're in a closed car, it's a bit more fun. But in an open car, it's it's hard work. And I think a lot of, we brought a lot of celebrities with us with Jaguar on them. I think mm. they found it quite tough going. <laughs> Did you sort of pre-vet them for how much of a you think they were really going to be into it beforehand? I, I kind of had my point of view of who was going to last, who wasn't. But I'll tell you a great participant who always was with us and a good friend of mine is David Gandhi. Mm. And David was with us in our Jags and um, uh, he was always great fun. He took it took it right in the chin. He could drive actually. And, you know, there was no, uh, there was no uh, celebrity lovey stuff about him. He was full yeah. on, you know. So... Uh, <laughs> He was good, but some of them I kind of looked at the beginning and thought, hmm, not sure they're going to make it. Yeah, yeah. Most of them did. Most of them did, to be fair. Yeah, but I think some of them were expecting champagne and canopies most of the way. Yeah, with the the D-type, does that have synchros? Were you sharing the driving? Yeah, sharing the driving. Was the D-type synchro? No, I don't think so, no. Oh, yeah, third and fourth, I think it's synchro. Yeah. Most of the second, I don't think it did, no. So you have to give some of the passengers a bit we of a lesson. A soft, we put a softer clutch on it. Okay. Just yeah. to make things a little easier. Um, if you could only drive one car for the rest of your life, mm. I'm going to say sports car, what, what, what would it be? 
Oh, my goodness. I should say F-type Jaguar, shouldn't I? Don't have to. <laughs> um, I think it would be in a 993 Porsche. Mm. You know, or a 993 Porsche, maybe a turbo. Yeah. You know, just kind of um, – uh, and, and and an old one as well because I, I love the tactility of these older cars. The 992 is a lovely car. Uh, 991's a lovely car, and I've driven them both. Um, but like the F-Type, you know, they are they, they they do a lot of the work for you. Uh, yeah. Whereas a 993 is still old enough to you have to work at it. So it had to be a 993. Yeah, it's as I go back and drive more older Porsches. I sort of get a little taste of each era and I can, I'm totally becoming that person that's like, I could see how you might have, you know, a 992, I've got a 997, then you might have a 964, you know, like, because they're all sort of different-ish. They are, they are, and I've driven a few of them. Um, but my other everyday car at the moment is a Volkswagen T6 van. Oh, nice. So yeah. perhaps I, that, if I was allowed another car, I would have that as my everyday driver. Yeah. Then, then you've got your fun and then yeah, all the practicality you need. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What should be worth more? Um, probably older, older Jaguars. Do you know what? Probably a DB7, if I can mention it. Mm. There's a lot of good car in the DB7. I know a lot of people know the history of it and there's a lot of Jag stuff in it, but as a car to drive, it's a lot of fun to drive and, you know, you can pick them up for about thirteen, fifteen thousand pounds. Yeah, and I think they really should be worth more than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think they should be up in the thirties at least for good ones. But, but uh, yeah, I think that's a hugely undervalued car because when people drive them, they don't expect to drive as well as they do. Mm. And they look yeah. great. Yeah, I think and they look nice. One. You know, they always get a bit of attention. And it's an Aston. <laughs> exactly, <It's> an Aston <laughs> Martin. Um, what's the most interesting car to you at the moment? You looking up anything? Googling? Um, oh my goodness, that's a difficult one. I'm overall, I'm keeping an eye on how the EVs are developing, yeah. generalizing. But I think what Audi and Volkswagen are doing are quite interesting because they're going all out. Volkswagen made a commitment to go all out. I'm not sure what JLR are doing in the electric car front because I'm not party to it anymore. Yeah, we had already decided Jaguar would be an electric car company before I left, so I wasn't. I wasn't sure why this was all suddenly new news, but um, um, on the electric car front, I think uh, I'm fascinated in how Volkswagen and, and Audi and Porsche and how Porsche have embraced it in the way they did. Porsche of all companies, I think is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I love the, the Taycan, I think is a supercar. Uh, but how Volkswagen are dealing with it and dealing with a way which has got to be manageable and affordable is going to be quite fascinating to watch. Yeah. You can get some of it out of volume, I understand that, but the the, the price of batteries and such like, uh, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. It is. It does feel like the cheap-ish. It's the cheap cheaper, yeah. And there are it's going to well, disappear. You know? Yeah, there are those as well. But but they're doing it, they're doing it well. Um. And then when you get to the Audi range, I think some of those cars are really quite uh, quite stunning. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the sort of Gen 2, but I, we might not even even see that with the, all the software and stuff. It seems like like Taycan got a, an update, any Taycan, yeah. and you got 10% more range. And you're like, yeah. oh, if yeah. we can get 
incremental little changes, 5%, yeah, 10% every year. And that's what's to keep an eye on because people are quite cynical. Some people are cynical about, well, the range of this. And also included in all that, of course, is the battery technology. You know, I'm a great believer that the technology will save us in the mess we're in. And, um, of course, one of the immediate issues is battery and battery technology. And I think that will develop tremendously over the next five years, not just in its ability, but also the content as well. Yeah. That sounds like one of the big developments will be, yeah, yeah. what they're made of and chemistry. And hydrogen. Watch that one. Hydrogen. I'm, I'm looking a lot into hydrogen at the moment at work, and we're, we're developing some stuff for a couple of hydrogen people, and, and hydrogen has its place as well. So it's a different it's, entity, but it's certainly got a place. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about hydrogen and some of the interesting sort of sciencey parts of it. And it sounds, it sounds complicated, it's complicated, but, you know, it starts off complicated. It always does. Um, but it's an alternative. And the future is not going to be one mode of, of power source, no. you know, and it's going to be a numerous modes of power source and and uh, we'll find different ways. And the right the right one for the right application. Yes. That's it. Like, yeah. Um, for final question, five-car garage, unlimited value. Five-car garage. Hmm. Um, okay, uh, F-Type SVR. Well, they don't do it anymore, sadly, but imagine That's they did. Right. Um, um, Porsche 993. Mm. A 32 hot rod. Nice. Which I have. Um, classic Mini. Okay. Possibly a Mark II Mini Cooper S, which I used to own, don't anymore. And finally, um, Volkswagen T6. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have it. And Lord. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Good. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed some of the answers. And Yeah, it was good. good to speak to you. It was, it was great to chat. And if, if I see you at an event somewhere, I will come and say hello. Thank you, Sam. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.